Rojbaş, this is the Kurdish edition podcast and I'm your host Sardar Saadi. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Kurdish Edition podcast. Today is June 24, 2019, and it marks the second anniversary of Professor Amir Hassanpour's passing. Two years after we said farewell to Amir, the sorrow of his passing is still heavy and very much present on hearts and minds of many of us. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Professor Amir Hassanpour and the continuing influence of his intellectual and revolutionary legacy in Kurdistan, Iran, and around the world. For this episode, I'm very delighted to be accompanied by Salah Hassanpour, Amir Hassanpour, and Shahzad Mojab's son. He will co-host this episode with me and uh, a little bit about Salah. Uh, Salah uh, Hassanpour is a PhD student at York University's Cinema and Media Studies Department. His focus is on studying the emergence of unionized labor in the early years of the Canadian film industry. And uh, he is more broadly interested in film labor as a historical phenomenon. I should also mention that Professor Shahzad Mujah provided me with uh, a lot of updates on the final stage of some of Amir's uh, writings in press, which I'm uh, really grateful for that. I'll talk about these uh, updates later. Uh, today, Salah will read an article for us by Professor Hassanpour uh, titled Wandering in Adalar Sahilinde. Uh, this article talks about the history of a song that has been sung in uh, many different languages in the region. In the background, you're hearing the Kurdish version of this song, Kadalen Emrodeshtu Chevshina by Mela Karim. Uh, and I will play other versions when Salah reads the article wherever appropriate. Professor Hassanpour had a special relationship with this song and going through his relationship in this article, he sheds light on the shared art and cultural heritage of different national, ethnic and religious groups in the region and their interconnectedness that has been undermined after the rise and spread of nationalism in the region, especially by the many newly invented uh, nation-states after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Many of the identity groups in the region try to claim, uh, for example, the ownership of a song, a dance, an instrument, an item of clothing, or a specific food or beverage for their own uh, group, instead of looking at the shared heritage uh, between all of them. 
It's not to ignore the fact that some of the dominant national groups in the region have continuously culturally appropriated or uh, stolen the heritage of other oppressed nations, as Professor Hassanpour in this article and his other works uh, extensively talk about. Yet this song is another item on the list of nationalists to claim its ownership and authenticity for their nations while it has uh, much deeper roots in the culture of the region. I believe this is one of the most brilliant and groundbreaking articles in the study of nationalism and popular culture in the Middle East and Balkans region, and it needs to be read and taught in every cultural and educational group, circle, school, center and institutions in the region that has been plunged in sectarian wars, genocides, nationalist domination and authoritarian oppression for decades. But before giving the microphone to Salah to introduce this article and read it, uh, let me briefly talk about Professor Amir Hassanpour for those uh, who are not so familiar with him and I'll also give you some updates about his upcoming publications. Amir Hassanpour was born in 1943 in Mahabad in Rojhalat, or the eastern part of Kurdistan in Iran. He completed elementary and secondary schools in Mahabad. In 1964, he finished his studies in English language from uh, the University of Tehran, and after that, he taught in the secondary schools of Mahabad. Four years later, he began uh, studying linguistics at the same university in Tehran and received his master's degree in 1970. In 1972, he started graduate studies in uh, communication at the University of Illinois at uh, Urbana-Champaign in the United States. During his years at this university, he was actively involved in the Iranian Student Association uh, organizing and in protest against Shah's regime in Iran. He took a break from his doctoral studies and returned to Iran and Kurdistan shortly after the Iranian revolution succeeded in 1979. He played a significant role in Kurdistan in the early years of the Iranian revolution as a member of the Society for Defense of Freedom and Revolution. He took a revolutionary leading role in many events that took place during that time most significantly in his organizing of the Long March in Marivan, as well as behind barricades in defending Sina or Sanandaj against the Karfu imposed on the city by the army of the newly established Islamic regime of Iran. Amir, Shahzad and Salah had to leave Iran for their safety in 1983. After the long break, he finished his PhD studies in 1989. His doctoral thesis was published in 1992 as a book under the title of Nationalism and Language in Kurdistan uh, from 1918 to 1985. This book is and has been an incredible source for many areas of Kurdish studies and a tremendous contribution to our understanding of the Kurds, Kurdish language and literature and nationalism in Kurdistan. In 1999, after years of teaching at the University of uh, Windsor and uh, Concordia University in Montreal, Professor Hassanpour joined the University of Toronto's Department of uh, Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations, where he retired ten, ten years later. Throughout his career, Professor Hassanpour wrote and published extensively and produced groundbreaking knowledge employing a critical framework uh, based on Marxist feminist theory. 
A list of his publications has been uh, published by Derwaza, uh, the Kurdish Journal of Social Sciences and Humanities, in their second issue, which is uh, a special issue dedicated to the intellectual uh, legacy of uh, Amir Hassanpour. And yet, uh, some of his works, and among them his lifelong uh, research project on the Passants Uprising in Mukrian in 1952, have yet to be published. In the last two years, many articles in different languages have been written to uh, remember Amir Hassanpour, and as I mentioned, the newly established Kurdish Journal of uh, Social Sciences and Humanities, Darwaza, which Amir was the editor-in-chief for the first issue, uh, published a special issue dedicated to him in April 2018. At the University of Toronto, the Department of Near and Middle Eastern uh, Civilizations is fundraising for an, uh, for an annual lecture series in uh, Professor Hassanpour's memory. There are also some developments in regard to opening a special course in Kurdish language and culture at the university to continue Professor Hassanpour's legacy. The entire archive and library of Professor Hassanpour has been donated to the libraries of the University of Toronto. They have accepted this donation and the library is planning to open Professor Hassanpour's collection in two categories of archival materials and books in the fall of 2019. His collection has been identified as one of the uh, richest and largest archival collection in topics related to the fields of Kurdish studies. Since 2017, uh, two books from uh, Professor Hassanpour have been published and uh, they are both in Farsi. The first one titled Barfaraz uh, Mojenoine Communism Upon the New Wave of uh, Communism is a collection of previously published articles and interviews with him. It was uh, published during the very last weeks of Professor Hassanpour's life but uh, it officially became available for purchase in uh, August 2017, after his passing. The Communist Party of Iran, Marxist-Leninist Maoist, has published this book. The second book, titled Aryanpur uh, va Jamashnasiya Marxisti, Tarikh, Tabaghe, Ejtemai va Dialectic, or in English, Aryanpur uh, and Marxist Sociology, History Class and the Dialectic, uh, was published in 2018 by uh, Iran Namak Books, uh, which is a publication house uh, based at the University of Toronto. In this book, Hassanpour writes about studying, learning, and teaching academic Marxism in Iran through his own and his friends' experiences in knowing and learning from the prominent Iranian sociologist uh, Amir Hossein Aryanpour, during uh, Professor Hassanpour's stud student years in Tehran in the 1960s. Uh, this book has been widely distributed in Iran. Iran Namak Books is also planning to publish Professor Hassanpour's lifelong research project on the Passants movement in Mukrian Kurdistan in 1952-1953. And just a small note that Mukrian is the name of the Kurdish region surrounding the city of Mohabad in Iran. This book is also going to be in Farsi and it is planned to be published in two volumes. And the first volume of this masterpiece will come out by the early fall. 
Uh, in this volume, uh, Amir Hassanpour gives an extensive historical account of this movement and provides a robust theoretical analysis. The second volume has two sections. One section uh, covers all correspondence between uh, the U.S. consulates in Tehran and Tabriz with the State Department, and the second uh, section includes the coverage of the peasants' movement in, uh, in the Iranian and Western press. Another forthcoming book by Professor Hassanpour that is also planned to come out in the fall is a collection of his previously published and four unpublished essays in English. This book is titled Essays on Kurds, Historiography, Orality and Nationalism will be published as part of the inaugural Kurdish Studies book series with Peter Long Publishing. And it's worth, uh, worth to mention that the series editor is Professor Shahzad Mojab. This book will be in three parts. Part 1, Historiography and Orality, Theory and Method. Part 2, Language and Cultural Rights. And Part 3, Gender and Cultural uh, Relations. The article that Salah will read for us today, Wandering in uh, Adalar Sahilinde, will be a chapter of the 12 uh, chapters of uh, this book. Uh, I should mention that this article has been translated in Kurdish Sorani by uh, Ahmad Eskandari and published in the third issue of Darwaza that uh, recently uh, came out. This article was first published in 2013 in an edited volume by Hamid Bozarslan and Clemens Colbert Yugel titled Joyce Bla, L'Aternel chez le Kurd. In the summer of 2012, Amir Hassanpour and Shahzad Mujab were in Istanbul and in a gathering with their friends and colleagues, Amir talks about his relationship with the song that is the topic of this article. It was fortunately recorded on a camera and here for the first time and publishing the audio clip of this video. After that, I'll talk to Salah and he will read the article for us. But first, Listen to Amir Hassanpour telling the story of his favorite song from his childhood. When I was a child, I was growing up in the city of Mahabad. This is in Iran, in Iran and Kurdistan. And uh, like this 1950s. So we didn't have television, satellite, radio. Radio was very limited. One song that I really liked was a song that was played in the Kawakhana, uh, coffee houses. Yeah. Uh, and children wouldn't go to coffee houses, but they play this record in the Kawakhana, and uh, I would stay around, they were passing by, I would listen to this story, to this song, and I really loved, loved it. And that's how the, the song goes. I'm not a good singer at all, I'm not the only singer, but I'll try to tell you how the, what the melody is. It's something like this. Kadalan emronesh to chawishina tsandamal mandi emrangina Vodasar gediyaradibina Vodihanda kulaki rangina This, uh, the melody. So, I always thought that this is a Kurdistan. And uh, this was a record uh, done in the 1930s in Baghdad uh, by a singer, uh, Malakarim, who was from my hometown. Uh, and it is accompanied by an excellent kanun. You know, kanun is an instrument that was very popular in Turkey. 
yes. in those times at least. I don't know if it's popular now. The Kalamun is amazing. It's so beautiful. So I always thought there's a Kurdish song. By accident, uh, years later, when I was in my uh, 20s, uh, I had access to a Kurdish journal. It's the most important Kurdish literary magazine, Galawesh. We usually, we didn't have access to anything Kurdish in Iran, but for some reason I got a volume of this. And I was looking through it, browsing, and there was a poem by Piremir, a, a Kurdish poet uh, and writer under Ottoman times, like during the Young Turk Revolution when there was freedom of the press and many Kurdish journals were published, he would write in uh, those journals. And then when the empire was uh, broke down and Iraq was created, he was in Suleimani. So he was a poet and writer. Uh, the poem was by uh, Pyramid, and it was these words that I sang. Uh -huh. But with one note, he said this was uh, based on the melody of Ottoman song Adalar Sahilinda. <laughs> so I was very surprised. I thought this was a Kurdish song. Now I know that this was an Ottoman song and Turkish song. So I knew this. This was very surprised for me. No one knew this. No one had talked about this. So we go further into time, into 1988. In 86, we moved from U.S. to Toronto, and we became friends with, a, with, a, with, a, with an Egyptian guy, uh, George Sawa. George Sawa was just finishing his doctoral dissertation in classical Arab music, and uh, he was uh, uh, very fond of uh, Kanun. He was claimed Kanun, actually. So one day we invited uh, him and his wife, who was also a musician, to our place for dinner. And he said that he, will, he would bring his khanu uh, to play with for us. And I was reminded of the khanu in this song. And I said I would surprise him. So I put the tape on the tape recorder, and when he came, I played the tape, the excellent khanu. And as soon as he heard that, he jumped up, Allah, Allah. <laughs> this is my most favorite Arabic song. <laughs> so now I understood that it's not only Ottoman and Kurdish, but also an Arabic song. <laughs> so I always wished to find the Ottoman song and uh, listen to it. Last night, it occurred to me, well, this is the internet and YouTube, let me check Adalar Sahilinda. And I checked it, and this came. So it's the one that you want? Yeah, it's the one that I want, the Ottoman song before the Republic, and it's on a record, and actually it shows the record yes. playing. So now you can play it and see, okay. hear the Ottoman song that I was looking for.
Salajan, thank you again for uh, accepting to come on the Kurdish Edition podcast and co-hosting this uh, episode with me. You're very welcome, Sardar John. I'm very glad to, to be here uh, this day to record episode seven of the Kurdish Edition. Uh, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Are you, are you listening to my podcast? Yes, of course. Yeah, every episode when it comes out, and I've yeah, it's been a, a very wide and diverse uh, a bunch of episodes so far. So I'm looking forward to to more. <laughs> Just kidding, Salajan. Uh, thank you. Um, so today uh, marks the uh, second anniversary of Emir's passing, and uh, looking back at the last two years, uh, I can't imagine how difficult it was on you and Shahrzad and uh, other uh, members of your family, relatives, uh, friends, people who know Amir uh, to accept his absence among us. Yes, and we wouldn't have actually really gone gone through that process uh, uh, without uh, the support of a lot of family and friends. So right. yes, thank you. Right. Yeah. Uh, how do you want Amir to be remembered? Um, I think I'd like to be remembered the way he would like to be remembered, which is uh, first and foremost as a um, Marxist uh, revolutionary and scholar, um, as someone who devoted uh, really his entire life to uh, promoting a vision of the Middle East that's uh, secular and, uh, more importantly, uh, non-capitalist, non-authoritarian. and. Um, He's one of the few people I've known in my life who've really authentically lived uh, their political convictions uh, in their daily life. And so that would be maybe another point. All right, yeah. right. And uh, uh, in this article that you're going to read today, uh, mm -hmm. we see this diverse background of Emir that mm -hmm. is probably not so much known and uh, his interest in music, in uh, different cultures in the region. Yeah. It's so interesting how uh, how rich he lived his life. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that you pointed out, and I do think that's the value of this uh, article I'm reading. You know, there, to, to, to whatever extent that I just finished saying that my, you know, dad lived uh, his politics uh, uh, in his daily life uh, very authentically. At the same time, he had, uh, he wasn't some kind of programmatic or dogmatic uh, uh, left revolutionary type of figure. He enjoyed uh, culture. He even enjoyed popular culture. He even enjoyed the so-called you know, capitalist culture, uh, aspects of the capitalist culture of North America, if you want to think about it that way. But so, so yeah, uh, the one thing is, uh, you know, his dissertation writing, a lot of his other publications don't necessarily reflect his, his, his cultural uh, interests and his interest in music in particular. And so, yeah, it was very great of him to have written this article um, at what happened to end up being uh, late in his life, uh, because, yes, it does show a, a more complete si uh, a picture of his uh, personal and intellectual interests, for sure. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, I think what's important is when you write about music in particular, um, and you write about music in a kind of transnational uh, way, that there should be um, a kind of lightness to the actual writing. And so, you know, the text that I'll be reading obviously is well-researched and uh, uh, is the product of, of years of study, but um, it doesn't necessarily uh, read as heavily as, as certain other political uh, writings do. Right, yeah. yeah. 
and no it, uh, the first time when i uh, read it uh, it was uh, uh, a couple years ago mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i was just so uh, amazed by uh, its richness and its uh, uh, diverse methodology and uh, the connections that he's building it with his own experiences with his childhood but i really want to also point out that uh, you in your article for the special issue on that was uh, mm-hmm. you also talk about this side of emir uh, maybe it's not our topic for this t- today's podcast but i really want you to maybe if you want mention that uh, his connection to the uh, north american pop culture you mentioned his interest in Star Trek series. Yes, uh, yes uh, in particular. So, uh, you know, one one aspect about my father is that uh, he, he has uh, come to the United States as of, uh, you know, the early 70s to do uh, postgraduate work here, uh, graduate and postgraduate work uh, here. So he's actually um, off and on. Uh, he's, he's, he's actually been in North America or had been in North America uh, since about uh, close to uh, 45, uh, uh, so, sorry, 40 years ago. So uh, there's an aspect where, uh, especially uh, having gone to some of these smaller campus towns, you know, there isn't much uh, in the in uh, much entertainment options. Let's say, like University of Windsor. Yeah, University of Windsor, or even University of Illinois. You know, Champaign Urbana is is not the the biggest. Uh, uh, town in the world. I, I'm not saying that to be disparaging. I've I've lived there for several years of my life, but uh, just to say that you know this is also an era where there are only you know th- four major television networks and so on. So um, one of the few aspects of commercial mainstream entertainment that my dad enjoyed because he saw value in the politics, especially in the in a vision of the future where there's uh, functionally uh, speaking there's no currency. And uh, broadly speaking, it does seem to be a post-capitalist society. Now, obviously, Star Trek still has a kind of um, military uh, model. Um, that's the basis of the show is essentially the U.S. Navy. But but my dad uh, would not be interested in those aspects of the show that are still, let's say, promoting a, a, a vague sense of U.S. imperialism in that way. But more, again, this, this vision, this kind of, uh, even though it's a liberal vision, uh, a nevertheless a, a vision of a, of a post-capitalist society where um, science and the pursuit of, of uh, scientific knowledge uh, and um, a kind of pro-intellectual cultural atmosphere were both very evident in the series itself. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, one might uh, be surprised that a, a former Kurdish le- uh, revolutionary w- would be interested in, in such a TV show, given that it has no direct connection to, let's say, the cause of Kurdish emancipation generally. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, in that context, if you think about a, a young Kurd who, who moves into uh, a small campus town in the United States in the early 70s. You know, there were very few other elements of popular culture that would resonate. So, yeah, in particular, Star Trek, uh, th- that that really is the explanation for for his, his like uh, of that show in particular. But, you know, he liked science fiction, um, and part of that was because he really valued Soviet culture and... Um, uh, the Soviets, uh, especially when my dad was was younger in the 50s and 60s, you know, during the late Stalin era, were very good at, at um, um, promoting 
uh, especially uh, um, fiction writing and right. even science fiction uh, writing. You know, the, some of the more important uh, science fiction authors uh, are from from what we might call the Iron Curtain. You know, Stanislav Lem and and a few other Eastern European figures come. And I'm and, and I in, in fact know for a fact that that my fa- father was interested in. In, in Soviet science fiction uh, as a kind of subcategory of, of Soviet cultures. Right. Um, and just uh, finally, before I um, uh, limit the microphone to you, I just want to mention uh, that uh, the uh, uh, archive and archival collection of Amir Hassanpur has already been donated to the libraries of uh, the University of Toronto. And as I mentioned, that uh, they will be available soon for the public to use. And it's uh, one of the largest uh, uh, um, archival collections uh, on the topics related to Kurdish studies. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, what me and my uh, mother have been working on, uh, Dr. Sharzat Mojab, um, for the last uh, year. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be... Uh, um, um, donating some more materials in the, in the next year uh, to complete that archive. And uh, there'll be, I think, initially s- uh, some small restrictions on access, but generally speaking, it, it will be uh, available, and, and it will be available soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Salah. And I'm going to uh, leave the microphone to you for reading the article. Wanderings in Andalar Sahilinde. In my childhood in Mahabad, a Kurdish city in Iran, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, I loved to hear a song played on a gramophone in tea houses. Tea houses, chaihane, called more often rafahane, or quote-unquote coffee house, were spaces of adult men. A child could show up only in the company of an adult. There were many tea houses in town. I would hear the songs of passerby, especially in the summer when doors and windows were open. My father's shop which I used to frequent, was near two tea houses in Medani Ardi, Flower Square, where grains, dairy products, and other commodities from neighboring villages were traded. The singer was Mela Kerim, and the song is known by the first two words of the lyrics, Ke Delen Emro Deshduk Chev Shine, which means when they say plains and mountains are green today. I love the song, its melody, lyrics, and the outstanding playing of the stringed instrument, the qanun, which breathed life into the singing. At the time, the only sources for recorded music were the gramophone and radio. Although our family was, to use an imprecise term, upper middle class, we did not have either a radio set until about 1954, or a gramophone until the early 1960s. This was the norm. We could listen to music in tea houses or at weddings, family gatherings, and picnics, or simply engage in singing in any appropriate context. The schools, primary and secondary, did 
did not offer music courses, though we were taught how to sing the national anthem and other official songs. After we bought a radio set, access to Kurdish music did not improve much because broadcasting in Kurdish was not allowed in Iran, Turkey, or Syria. The two-hour-long Kurdish program of Radio Baghdad was the only station with Kurdish music and, as of 1954, the much shorter program of Radio Yerevan in neighboring Soviet Armenia was the other source of broadcast music. Radio Baghdad did not play my favorite song because it had been recorded, as I later found out, not by the station, but by one of the record companies in Baghdad in the 1930s. This was in part for copyright reasons. In fact, the station had only two songs by the singer who had 18 songs on record. The singer, born in 1885, was from my hometown, Mahabad, formerly Saj Blah, and had resettled in Suleimani, Suleimaniye, then in the Ottoman or the western part of Kurdistan, around 1901. He had been to Baghdad twice in 1927 and 1928 in order to sing for Western gramophone and record companies, interested in expanding their presence in the emerging music market of the region. The song was recorded by his master's voice, Abu Ghalp in Arabic, in Baghdad. It consisted of a maqam, Etoy Boy Leleke Esli, or You Were the Original or Real Leila, and a Beste, Kedelen Emro Desh Dukreoshine, as they say, mountains and plains are green today. Interestingly, I have never heard anyone improvising it. It was not the right music for weddings in which dance songs were more appropriate. Much later in the 1970s, Matsar Qaliqi, a singer from Saqqiz, Iranian Kurdistan, and the Kamkar music band performed the song. Mahabad is a Kurdish city that was incorporated by the Qajar monarchy into the province of Azerbaijan in northwest Iran in the 19th century. While predominantly Kurdish, there were a few hundred Azerbaijani Turks, Armenians, Assyrians, and Jews before World War I. 
The Armenian and Assyrian populations were much larger and some lived in villages. Although the Armenians and Jews had left by the early 1970s, the Jewish and, Ar and Armenian neighborhoods, Gareki, Hermanyan, Gareki, Julikan, retained their names. The town's Armenian church was destroyed during the First World War when the area had been transformed into a quote-unquote theater of war between the Ottoman and Russian troops. In spite of this ethnic-linguistic diversity, it was not easy to hear non-Kurdish music except Persian music, which was broadcast by Radio Iran. I never heard a non-Kurdish version of the song, and I was sure this was a Kurdish melody. In the late 1960s, I had access to a volume of Qalawesh, or Sirius, the celebrated Kurdish literary magazine, which had been published in Iraq between 1939 and 1949. It was illegal to possess or read any Kurdish written or print material in Iran under the Pahlavi monarchy, but we were able, once in a while, to get a book or magazine clandestinely through friends and acquaintances. While reading, I came across the lyrics of the song, which the magazine said was written by Pire Merd, 1867-1950, well-known Kurdish journalist and poet living in Iraqi Kurdistan. A short note at the top of the poem said, quote, to the tune of the Ottoman song Andalar Sahilinde, unquote, on island shores, which is the Turkish name of the song. For me, this was no less than a shock. How could such a clearly Kurdish song be Ottoman Turkish? By this time, I knew through reading two Kurdish books, Mejui, Edebi Kurdi, History of, the, of Kurdish Literature, and Yadi Piremert, In Memory of Piremert, that the poet was a citizen of the Ottoman Empire before its disintegration in the course of the First World War. As of 1918, his hometown fell within the borders of the new state Iraq, that Britain carved out of three southeastern Ottoman provinces it had conquered in 1917. It is thus no surprise that Piremert would write the lyrics for a Kurdish version of Andalar Sahilinde. In about 1966, an acquaintance in Mahabad showed me a fresh-looking copy of the old record, 12 inches, available for, for, for purchase for 50 tomans, about $7. Although I was earning a salary then, I could not afford it at the time. About a year later, I heard Mela Karim's song played in a tea house close to the office where I was working. I rushed down to the tea house to find out how they got the record. It was a 7-inch disc produced in Iran and now available for purchase. When we moved to Canada two decades later, my partner and I found new friends in Toronto, including a couple, George and Susan Sawa. George was an Egyptian musician who had written his doctoral dissertation on classical Arabic music in 1983 and was performing on a number of instruments, including his favorite, the Kanun, while Susan was also a student and performer of Arabic songs. When we invited them for dinner, Dr. Sawa said he would bring his kanun and play it. It occurred to me that I could surprise him by playing Milakarim's song on a cassette player. When I pushed the button on the tape recorder and the song began with kanun, it took him only a few seconds to jump and scream, Allah, Allah, this is my favorite Arabic song. The melody was apparently more striking than the accompanying instrument. I now understood that the Kurdish song was not only Turkish, but also Arabic.
Spending the summer of 2012 in Istanbul, I told this story to a number of newly acquired friends, students, and faculty members of Boğaziçi University, and others to find out about the contemporary life of the song. After singing part of the Kurdish song, I asked them if they could recognize the melody. They did, and two persons improvised it. Many knew it as Ada Sahilerinde, on island shores. When I checked internet sources and CDs, it became clear that almost a century after the production of the Kurdish version, the Turkish song continued to be sung by many performers, including Turkey's Kurdish singers Ahmed Kaya, 1957-2000, and Ibrahim Tatlises. One of the students in Guazaji University found out through an internet research that the song may have been composed by either Yesari Asim Arsoy, 1900-1992, who was born in Drama, now in Greece, or Hafiz Shashi Osman Efendi, 1867-1932, of Mosul, now in Iraq. My internet search revealed much about the song and the politics of its appropriation by listeners from various national or ethnic backgrounds. It is obvious that the d- disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and the subsequent fragmentation of its multilingual, multi-ethnic population into different nation-states, as well as the 1915 genocide of the Armenian people, have shaped the diffusion of the song and its identity. To begin with, Kurds are no longer aware that the Kurdish song was adapted from the Turkish, and some think that the Kurdish version is borrowed from the Arabic. For instance, Mehmed Haju, identifying himself as the Kurdish quote-unquote oot player from Syria, has uploaded his instrumental performance of the melody and identifies it as, quote, Kadilin Amro, a traditional Kurdish song based on an Arabic style, Qaduq al-Mayas, quote-unquote, your gate loftily, proudly walking. This genealogical claim is apparently rooted in the dominant positions of Arabic music in Iraq and Syria. It reveals the extent of separation of the Kurds and Arabs of Syria from neighboring Turkey, even in the age of the internet and more relaxed border crossings. It seems that eight decades of the transformations of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire into the Republic of Turkey, the construction of the ethnic Turkish nation, and the disruption of linguistic and cultural ties among the people of the fallen empire have recast the hierarchies of power in music. In Iran and Turkey, where Kurdish music was suppressed as a matter of state policy, relations among these music cultures are even more complicated. Strange to say, none of Melakerim's songs are available on the internet, whether through YouTube or Kurdish music websites, that provide a sizable quantity 
of the art of the past and present. According to Hasiraka 40, apparently a Kurdish commentator on Ibrahim Tatlis's performances of the Turkish version, quote, it is Kurdish song too by Mizhare Khaliki. Khaliki is a Kurdish singer from Iran. On YouTube, there are no less than a dozen Arabic variants, old and new, and from different Arab majority countries, where it is known as Qaduq al Mayas, the words taken from the first line of the lyrics. Much like the Kurdish context, knowledge about the Turkish origins of the piece is quite limited, although one YouTube Arabic version sung by Asala Nasri, uploaded by an apparent Turkish fan, carries in the title Arabcha Adal Sahileri, that is, Arabic language Ada Sahileri. While there can be no doubt about the Turkish origins of the Kurdish song, its Turkish identity is contested when the Greek version enters the stage. Sen para 
In May of 2008, a Greek YouTube uploader, Romekos 2, provided the Turkish and Greek versions from records produced in the 1920s and 1930s, and identified the song as, quote, a well-known tune in Turkey, and also known in Greece and in Syria, supposedly originally from Aleppo. This Turkish version is recorded by Bursa-born Greek Achelias Poulos in the U.S., while the Istanbul Greek Adonis Dalgas and the Izmir-born Yorgos Vidalis perform among the earlier Greek versions. The tune became very popular in Crete, originally associated with a type of urban song centered on the town of Rethymnon, whose most important practitioner was Stelios Fustelaris. Commentators on this upload, 20 as of September 15, 2012, mostly writing in Turkish, highly appreciate the songs. One of them, Don't Fascize Me, says, quote, This song is another proof for our brotherhood. Nothing else is left to say. Then, Andolulu writes, I wonder why no Kurd says this song is originally Kurdish. Ha 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 ha, stupid people, quote unquote. Another version uploaded on January 31st, 2008, sung by Turkish singer Hamiet Yücesiz, has attracted more listeners, 168,289 on September 15th, 2012, with more comments, 46 of them. One, Kotan Jan Levin, writing in English and German, rejects the idea of originality but considers the song, quote-unquote, as part of the Turkish culture. He goes on to say, There is no such thing like original, quote-unquote. There are versions in different languages. However, the sound-slash-tone is obviously Arabic, triple excla- exclamation marks. It is called Hichaz since Ottoman times. 
In German, he goes on to say, nonetheless, it is something that belongs to Turkish culture. We see it nothing, really absolutely nothing, that is Greek. Another, Varangian 1915, apparently in an Armenian name, says, you, quote, you can thank the Christians for composing it, unquote. And this leads to a conflict over Christian and Turkish relations. One commentator, Akilvar Mantikvar, reports, quote, thank you Christians for composing it. Now put that stick out of your ass and enjoy the music, unquote. Shaktama 13 writes, I know Matya Mu also. This is a song from Constantinopolis. It's been sung by Ottomans. There are Greek, Turkish, Bosnian, Albanian, Armenian versions of it, therefore, dot, dot, dot. Another, Ahmed Tepik, writing in Turkish, says that this is the quote-unquote original Asli, Song of Syria, at least a thousand years old, unquote. Sometimes comments take a racist turn, usually against the Turks or the Greeks. Leaving Istanbul on a long flight to Toronto in August of 2012, I spent much of the 10 hours listening to the music provided to passengers by Turkish airlines on the occasion of the company's 75th anniversary. Part of this repertoire was composed of songs on a CD put together by Fikret Erkaya and Suat Sain, Songs of Istanbul, or slash Istanbul Sharkilari, Volume 1. One of the songs is Ada Sahil Lerinda, with a note, Suz e Music Anonym. In other words, lyrics and music, anonymous. However, those who have packaged the music for the airline company have not included any pieces from the non-Turkish music of Turkey. Remembering the time when I could listen to my favorite song only when I happened to be in the vicinity of a tea house, and only if the gramophone happened to be playing it, I could only appreciate my unlimited access to its Turkish variant while flying between continents. It seems, however, that the revolutionary advances in the production, distribution, and reception of music have not radically changed its politics. Before long, I found out that Andalar Sahilinde appears now as an Arabic melody with new lyrics and without any reference to Qadu Khalmayas. The Lebanese singer Marcel Khalife has sung one of the poems of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darvish, and it is also performed by other singers. I'm not the 
In sharp contrast with the nationalist search for purity, singers and composers in the pre-nationalist era not only borrowed from different music cultures, but also created works in languages other than their native tongue. In fact, a considerable portion of Kurdish oral literature and folk music collected and published in the Soviet Union came from the mouth of Armenian performers. The Kurdistani Jews of Iraq, both rural and urban, also used their own Neo-Armaic language, Kurdish and Arabic. Even more significant is the existence of Kurdish songs about quote-unquote the oppression of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, as well as the quote-unquote struggle of Assyrians against the state. While Armenians and Kurds are visibly different in re religion and language, it is difficult to determine whether, for instance, the Ballad of Khaj and Siamend is Armenian or Kurdish. To give another example, there is a story about the offensive at of the army of Shah Abbas, king of Iran's Safavid dynasty, on Fortress Dimdim and the massacre of the Kurds of Biradost principality and the enslavement of their women. In his eyewitness account, the Shah's official chronicler presents the siege and the battle lasting from November 1609 to the summer 1610 as a consequence of Kurdish mutiny and treason. Kurdish oral tradition, literature, and histories, in contrast, treated as the struggle of the Kurds against foreign domination. An Armenian version of this markedly Kurdish experience also exists. The nationalist appropriation of music is, however, ubiquitous. Not only songs, their lyrics and melodies, but also instruments and singers turn into sites and agents of nation-building under conditions of statelessness. As for instruments, nationalists try to claim one or more instruments as belonging to or even having originated in, the na in their nation, even though the non-Western instruments in use in the region predate the formation of nations. To cite one example from the Kurdish case, the instruments used in the ritual music of Kurdish religions, Yazidism, Def, or framed drum, and Ne, or Shebade, flute, and Ahlaq, Haq, Tambur, or long-necked lute, are treated as Kurdish. Moving from melodies and instruments to singers, I recount another story of my encounters with nationalism and music. It was not long before I said farewell to my nationalist thinking in politics around 1963 that I heard a friend complaining about the way Mehmed Mamli, the prominent Kurdish singer in my hometown, composed his new songs. He would listen, according to my friend, to Radio Baku first, learn an Azerbaijani melody, add Kurdish lyrics, and present it as the Kurdish song. Mamli used to perform a couple of his new songs every year during the season of wedding celebrations in the summer. At the time, the broadcasting station of the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan was a major source for Azerbaijani Turkish music. In one wedding, I asked Mamli why he was borrowing Turkish melodies instead of composing Kurdish songs. He responded, quote, Look, I have revived Zindum Kirdotwe, many old Kurdish songs, so what if I borrow Kurdish tunes? While I did not appreciate the answer at the time, I realized later that although Imam Lee was also a Kurdish nationalist, his horizons, especially as a musician, were much broader than mine. In fact, in the 1960s and 1970s, the main instrumentalist accompanying his singing, Askar Tarzan, was an Azerbaijani Turk playing the tar, the long-necked lute. Thank you. 
This craze for purity or authenticity was at odds with the musical life of the Kurds and neighboring peoples, both in the pre-nationalist past and the nationalist present. I will point to two moments in this history. At about that time, that is, the early 1960s, Aram Tigran, 1934-2009, to a young Armenian singer born in the Kurdish town of Kamishli in Syria, on the Syria-Turkey border, decided to resettle in Armenia. When he was leaving, his father told him never to forget the Kurds. Aram worked in Radio Yerevan and devoted much of his singing to Kurdish songs. Aram sang in Kurdish, Armenian, and Arabic. Before he passed away in 2009, he stated wish to be buried in Diyarbakir, the major city in Turkey's Kurdistan, a request rejected by the Turkish government. has been, in its long history, the home of many peoples, including Armenians, Assyrians, Jews, Kurds, and Turks. It is full of mosques as well as ruined and surviving Armenian and Assyrian churches. While singing and songs were of different origins, their performance and reception as well as the study of music were no different. The study of Kurdish music, still in its infancy today, was begun by an Armenian priest, Komitas or Gomitas or Somitas Vartabed, 1865 to 1935. His first work was, according to an article in the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, a dissertation with the title, quote, Kurdische Musik, Dissertation, U of Berlin, 1899, unquote. Another work, Melodie Kurde, 
by Comitas in 1903, is the first monographic publication on Kurdish music. Moreover, he had collected some 3,000 Armenian, Kurdish, Turkish, Persian, and Georgian songs. According to one account, he refused to, quote, recognize any divide between the folk musics of Turkey and, and Armenia, unquote, and, quote, showed a way in which the antagonism between the two could be dissolved, unquote. Komitas was a target of the Armenian genocide of 1915. Although he survived until 1935, he had lost his mental health. According to another source, Vrej Nersesian, quote, Komitas's real tragedy was the loss of his research. His will was broken, unquote. The Armenian genocide radically changed the demographic map of the country and its musical culture. Armenians and Assyrians, who had lived in their ancient homeland together with Kurds, Turks, and Jews, were virtually wiped out. Soon, the successor of the Ottoman Empire, the Republic of Turkey, banned the music of non-Turkish peoples. Turkish music became a venue for the nation-building and state-building projects of Kemalist nationalism. The elimination of the Assyrian and Armenian peoples restricted their cultural contact with the remaining population of the Kurds and Turks, and the criminalization of Kurdish culture created antagonism between Turkish and Kurdish peoples and their cultures. Kurds were forcibly assimilated into the official language and culture. The picture is, however, more complex. Recently, the Ottoman Empire has romanticized as a state that tolerated religious, ethnic, and cultural diversity as well as local self-rule. There is considerable interest in blending the Ottoman past and Republican present in the form of an Ottoman Islamic or Ottoman Turkish synthesis and using the Ottoman Empire as a model for managing the mosaic of peoples and cultures in the region. The Ottoman Empire was not, however, unique among other empires insofar as all were unable to centralize state power. These states, emerging and surviving on the basis of the feudal socioeconomic system, could not afford an elaborate military and civil administration beyond the capital city and its environs. Feudal, quote-unquote, disunity, or, quote-unquote, fragmentation, shaped all aspects of life from China and Japan to England and Spain. This this unity was sustained by a self-sufficient agrarian economy with a predominantly peasant population tied to the land. Much like political power, cultural life, including music, was fragmented, although music and other cultural forms did not cross local frontiers. This explains why, until the mid-19th century, the Ottoman state could not overthrow the, the principalities in Kurdistan or the Arabian Peninsula, although the sultans had tried to do so throughout the centuries. Unlike the Turkish Republic, which legally and ideologically criminalized non-Turkish musics and languages, the Ottoman state before the Tanzimat era, 1839 to 1878, the period of the quote-unquote, modernization of the feudal state structure, could not even imagine the banning of music, language, and costumes in Kurdistan. Even if such a policy could have been contemplated, the state had no means to enforce it throughout all its territories. The Ottoman army's ransacking of the excellent library of Bidlis Principality in 1655, graphically narrated by eyewitness Evila Celebi, was an act of looting rather than a politically and ideologically motivated destruction of the cultural or literary traditions of the Kurds. The quote-unquote tolerance of the feudal state thus had nothing to do with multiculturalism, internationalism, or the absence of ethnic prejudice. Whenever the landed ruling class and its state left ordinary people alone, there was rarely any conflict between those split by cleavages of cultural ethnicity and religion. I have heard stories of Muslim Kurdish villagers in the years prior to World War I praying in Christian shrines at time of suffering. 
Still, the history of the region is full of stories about attacks on Yazidis, Jews, Christians, and other minorities. Ethnic prejudice predates nationalism, but nationalist politics turns ethnic differences into political, theoretical, and ideological projects of nation-building, and the state built on these projects is given the role of guardian and executor. No doubt, nationalism in power is not on equal footing with the nationalism of a suppressed or stateless people. The nation-states in West Asia have violently suppressed Kurdish music and language, while Kurds have resisted this repression by promoting their music and language. I'm not suggesting that nations, peoples, tribes, regions, religions, or genders do not or should not produce their own specific melodies, rhythms, styles, forms, genres, instruments, and so on. It is obvious that the music heritage of the world is as colorful as the mosaic of peoples. In fact, one study of Kurdish music has noted its distinctiveness among the music cultures of West Asia. Others have identified even, quote, pan-Kurdish musical forms, unquote, in this politically and geographically divided and stateless nation. And I have no doubt that the universality of music, the fact that all human societies have music, is comprehensible only in the recognition of its particularities. Dialectically speaking, universals and particulars form a unity and struggle of opposition. The problem I have been raising is the way nationalism, both as political ideology and social movement, appropriates the art and turns it into a site of national conflicts. The particularity of music is transformed into a question of nationhood, and its projects range from survival to aggression to ethnocide or, more precisely, musicide. I've tried to show that there was no basis, other than nationalism, for antagonism between the music and music publics of Turks and other peoples of Turkey, Ottoman, or otherwise. There was, in fact, considerable convergence or sameness to the extent that the listening publics were not conscious of ethnic or national origins of the music they appreciated. Nationalism tries to blow up these differences and divide the listening public along ethnic lines. The problem is nationalism rather than national music. However, nationalism, whether of the oppressor or oppressed nation, does not come with its nemesis, internationalism. The two remain in a situation of perpetual conflict. At present, nationalism is dominant everywhere. While theories of globalization, quote-unquote transnationalism, quote-unquote cosmopolitanism, or quote-unquote post-nationalism proclaim the erosion of borders and the withering away of nations, the nation and its ideologies continue to be reproduced in music as in other realms of life. One powerful dynamic of the erosion of borders is the unceasing revolution in communication technologies, which offers music's publics much to celebrate. We are in a situation of the, quote, annihilation of space by time, unquote, as Marx observed some 160 years ago at the end of the Industrial Revolution. Censorship, the way it was carried out in Turkey by criminalizing the possession of recorded music, is no longer possible. However, musics, like individuals, languages, and cultures, are not equal. The state and the market both act as hegemonic forces in producing and reproducing inequality of musics, and none of them works in favor of stateless musics. Even musics with states are not equal because nation-states remain unequal. At this point, Kurdish music is rising from the ashes of musicide. Technologies of music and language unite as well as divide a nation fragmented by international borders. However, Kurdish music can be both nationalist and internationalist, but such internationalism will not happen spontaneously. The preliminaries for internationalism as politics and way of life are at hand. 
a world economy, the shrinking of space, theoretical advances, extensive practice, the formation of a worldwide class of workers in urban poor, and the desire of peoples to overcome national, ethnic, and religious divisions. However, displacing nationalism calls for serious departures from the now antiquated form of organizing human societies, the nation-state. This rupture demands rising against the current. It is therefore not surprising that a handful of ex extremist Assyrian and Kurdish nationalists have turned YouTube into a site of hatred through their quote-unquote historical mystifications. The internet does, of course, offer a few Kurdish variants of the most internationalist of all songs, L'Internationale, although it is never broadcast on mainstream radio and television in Kurdistan and neighboring countries. Shut